This episode of this podcast is making me thirsty is brought to you by Sagman Bennett Robbins Oppenheimer and Taft Law Firm. Welcome to this podcast is making me thirsty. The number one destination for Seinfeld fans. This episode 74. Today's guest is Pat Hazel. Pat was hired as one of the first writers in season one of Seinfeld. He also appeared in two episodes of Seinfeld and was the warm up act for Seinfeld live tapings. Thank you for listening. If you dig it, please pass it on. Follow us on Twitter at this thirsty. Check out our YouTube channel. Check out our Instagram. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. This podcast is making me thirsty. Episode 74, Pat Hazel. Welcome to this podcast is making me thirsty. The number one destination for Seinfeld fans. This episode 74. Today's guest has over 25 years of showbiz experience as a comedian, writer, producer, and director. He's a chief creative officer for Sweetwood Creative Production Company. He's appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and his one-man show, The Wonder Bread Years, aired on PBS to critical acclaim. He has his own podcast, popular podcast, called Creativity in Captivity. He was part of the original writing staff on Seinfeld for season one, appeared in two Seinfeld episodes, and was a warmer back for Seinfeld live tapings. We were super excited he took the time to join us. Please welcome Pat Hazel. Pat, thanks for joining. You're welcome. You really, you've almost run out of guests once you get to me. <laughs> <laughs> like the second cousin twice removed from the Seinfeld family. Season one, man. That's, that's, that's it. You, you yeah. and, and Matt Goldman. Well, listen, yeah, listen, not many people were there from the beginning and you were. So take us back 1990. Um, I know you had the relation with uh, with Matt Goldman. Tell us how the whole, um, you know, Seinfeld experience came about. I know you wrote the you wrote the play Bunk Bread Brothers, but tell us how how you caught the eye of Larry and Jerry. Well, that that play Bunk Bread Brothers was our spec script, which was kind of a little bit un you know, a little bit different than most people would send in another sitcom or something. And Matt and I had written that as a showcase for our own, you know, dreams of a sitcom or something. So we really just got lucky that that got delivered at Castle Rock right when they were looking for folks. Uh, I had had a bit of a relationship with Jerry Pryor, which was that I opened for him on his first HBO special called Stand Up Confidential. And I was kind of tooled around the country on occasion being an opening act on the road. And somewhere along the line, I, you know, Jerry used to joke that I was protected under the Seinfeld umbrella of insurance, that if I could keep coming up with funny things that I'd have stuff to do. And uh, when I submitted that script along with Matt, Larry and Jerry were doing it by themselves. They had done the pilot all alone. And uh, then we're looking for some folks, but they had a short order. You guys are the experts on all this more, more than even I am. It was called the Seinfeld Chronicles at that time. Mm -hmm. And they were, it was done under the late night and the specials division of NBC, which was not the traditional primetime path. And uh, they gave them a run at these four episodes. So Matt and I really picked up the first two slots to join them. 
and we did we wrote an episode that i think was only the title made it through the cut it was called la platonic bomb which was uh, introducing uh Julie Louis-Dreyfus's character. Elaine was not in the pilot, as you know. Right. And so we kind of got uh, dished out this idea to introduce the girl. And, you know, in retrospect, you look back at all of this, it was so clear in a way to Larry David what he was up to. But Matt and I were new on the scene. And so we we did write a an episode and they looked at it. And then uh, Larry took it home and uh, did a nice job of completely rewriting it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and because what you understand, the more you're in the business is that the creators and the showrunners know the voice of the show. So even though you think you're writing funny stories or funny jokes, it's not sort of the, the whole shebang. And they still probably didn't know what it was completely at that time. But the voice of what it intended to be was rested with Larry and Jerry. Right. And so as a, I guess, not having a, a, uh, a credit for actually writing an episode um, as a special consultant, I guess is, is sort of was your role in a way, like, like take it through a typical week, I guess what I'm asking, like we're how involved, I know it sounds like you pitched ideas. Um, were you got like, how did it typically go? Did Larry and Jerry already have um, those four from season one sort of written and you guys kind of bounced off ideas and punched them up or anything like that. I mean, just sort of was, what was your typical week? Like, I guess. Well, um, at the time I had a different one, a few different responsibilities, but one of okay. them at the time was that they were doing more interstitial standup. So I was contributing to that. Those ah, okay. club things with, with Jerry, which meant also sometimes testing the stuff or prepping that stuff up. And we, we, we were all involved in sort of looking back at it or, it wasn't the traditional round table, which it became when there was a bigger staff, mm. but you know, Larry and Jerry had a fairly good sense of, uh, of the main characters. Um, we were there though, when we had to name the coffee shop monks and when we had to come up with the theme song with Jonathan Wolf. And that was where the real learning curve was, was to be a part of all of the nuances of what it was going to be. And, you know, keeping Kramer's name. Kramer, you know, was a real guy and everybody knows that by now. But at the time, uh, NBC didn't want us to use it. They were very, you know, adamant about, yeah, we don't want to use a real guy's name. And Larry goes, yeah, it'll be fine. And they go, no, we can't do that. And I said, why don't we get the rights? Like, why don't we call him? And Larry went in the other room and called this guy, Kenny Kramer, and and offered him $1,000. And he came back, he goes, he wants 2000 <laughs> and, and it was classic Kramer. Right. And, uh, yeah. and the network says, no. And I just, I just said, what are you talking about? It's done. Like that's the end of the negotiation, $2,000. We don't have to horse around with this guy's name. And they tried Kessler. They tried a few other things to try to push on us, but it, it was the perfect name. And we, in those several episodes in the beginning, it sort of grew on us where it wasn't, it was unchangeable at that point. Um, and the coffee shop was a little more complex because in New York, if there was a, if you named something, whatever you crazy name you gave it, if there was one like that, you could get sued by the restaurant. They, they would think it was that restaurant. Right. So, so we, I don't know how many different diner names and things we tried dozens and then almost hundreds of names, you know, you couldn't really do Bob's you couldn't do whatever. Cause it was, there was going to be one in the state of New York, if not in the city. So <laughs> 
we, we really, we had run out of, of even crazy names that wouldn't get cleared by the network. And there was a Thelonious Monk poster on that, in that office. I don't know. It was just in the Castle Rock office. And I think out of exhaustion, I don't remember if it was Jerry or Larry said, just try monks. And then they go, yep, that's good. It's clear. Right. And we're like, but at that time we didn't care anymore. We weren't, you know, <laughs> like we got one action, the Thelonious and, Monk connection. I like it. And Pat, you were, I mean, you and Matt were young guys, right? At what late twenties yep. when this all came about. So just tell us a little bit like how you connected with, we, and we spoke with Matt Goldman. He was fantastic, but how did you guys originally connect? Um, obviously there's a special bond there. Matt and I, yeah. Well, <laughs> I have to say that that play Bunk Bed Brothers that we wrote was not a spec script we wrote to get this job. There was another guy who you may know of, Joel Hodgson. Joel was a Minnesota guy that, that uh, knew Matt, and he created the Mystery Science Theater 3000 or whatever that, that video, um, you know, movies thing was. And there was a club or a theater, kind of a hybrid. What it really was was a converted Texaco and they turned it into a, like an improv theater. And they had contacted me and Matt independently to see if we could create shows. And that was because Joel had created a show within that and they, and he recommended some people. So I remember us meeting at a party in LA through mutual friends. And he, he said, are you right? Are you writing a thing? I go, well, I haven't started yet, but they've asked me to. And he said, they asked me to, too. And I was like, eh. We, why don't we just do it together? Like it was such a move to downsize the amount of work we had to do was for both of us to like lay half the work off on another guy, essentially. <laughs> so rather than us writing two independent one man shows or something, we sort of decided we have enough. Both of us had a lot of brothers and we were going to make fun of brotherhood and sibling rivalry in a way that we could get away with it. Because if my brothers called me on it, I would say, no, that's about Matt's family and then vice versa, but we could be really true about it. And so we had that, we were working on that. In the meantime, he was, Matt was working on a few other kind of crazy ancillary things that were young writer related things. And like, I remember, I can't remember the name of the project, but for some reason, he was working with Larry Hovis uh, from the Hogan's Heroes days, uh, who played, um, which, what was his character name? Um, anyway, the fact is, is that Larry Hovis suddenly had General Bull Carter and all these people that we grew up with on TV coming over to Matt's office. So I was always like, call, if somebody from Hogan's Heroes comes in there, call me. You know, I want to, <laughs> I want to meet him. <laughs> oh, he was. Uh, um, Carter, he played the part of Carter. I don't know if you guys ever watched Hogan's Heroes, but Sergeant, Sergeant Carter, yeah. yeah, yeah, that was the most unlikely sitcom about a prisoner of war camp. Right. <laughs> odd, uh, odd scenarios on sitcoms back in the day. Um, well, in that in that one, they would somehow they would craft German blankets into uniforms and then go into town to the Hofbrau house and go out with women and then come back to the camp. Right? It, it made no sense at all. <laughs> so we know that you know your your background in stand-up uh you're opening for jerry and you know we watched a carson clip and your stand-up is seinfeld-esque i thought in, in a way the you know the the um the raising guy bit the halloween bit um so you know in the first season you mentioned you were a part of those those stand-up bits that jerry would do 
um, on the show, they were more prominent in the first season and then they, uh, they weeded them out eventually. The first season, there was a middle act too, you know, the yeah. beginning, middle and end, um, you know, and they always had to tie into the show. That was kind of the idea of the show. Maybe take us through how, how it's interesting. I didn't realize that, that you had as much to do with that. Um, you know, it sounds like that was part of, you know, one of your main responsibilities. Did you, um, I mean, were you writing for Jerry or were you just kind of punching him up? Or you kind of just going over no, his stuff? It, I mean, Jerry's such a good writer. You know, he's a guy that, uh, you know, even today he writes most of his own stuff at that mm -hmm. time. It was about volume and getting there. And, right. uh, I had contributed a few things, tags and ideas kind of just on the fly at clubs and, I, he, uh, he liked me and he, uh, at the time I had a magic and juggling act of oh, juggling yeah, yeah. top hats and doing stuff. And, but when he took me on the road, he gave me some advice and just said, Hey, why don't you, uh, leave, leave the props at home, bring a suit bag and you can, uh, you, you won't get fired. You know, we'll go to Dallas and you can try just doing straight stand up. And I really, I contend that I thought he was being, uh, a great mentor and very avuncular, but I, I think. I, he, I came to realize that he didn't want to wait for my props and, you know, <laughs> it would be easier. We just got off the plane and hit the stage sort of thing. But I did talk to him the other day on my podcast and he said that he, it was a really, really a, a gift to not only be able to warm up his crowd, do stand up for that, but also to be around a guy that writes so much, writes so frequently. So when you contribute a, a notion or an idea or a tag, you know, all of the work is done. You know, you're putting the cherry on top of the whipped right. cream at that point. Um, but I did, I did, I was, became a mechanic in his shop for a period of time. And so therefore you try always to look for things that you can do to enhance it, whether it's a visual thing. I used to contribute um, kind of crazy um, inventions for, for Kramer. He had I don't even know what episode it in, but he had a, he had a necktie. Yeah. That, necktie dispenser. Yeah. 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 So oh, <laughs> if a businessman spilled stainless stay yeah, yeah. tie, he would tear it off and pull a new one out of the knot. Like I came up with that kind of stuff all the time and they would just laugh at the office and they'd find, they just find a way to wedge it in. Um, right. And I think I named, I named Kramer's company, um, which was Kramerica industries. And it was many, I wasn't even there anymore when Jerry called me and said, Hey, can we keep using Kramerica Industries? He's like, I go, of course. Like, what am I gonna? I'm, <laughs> I'm no use for it. But it was a kind of a courtesy call. Right. That's awesome. Um, and then it was really it was tight back then. Like the uh, Jason and Julia and Michael, everybody was sort of building this like an Amish barn, right? Together mm. in a way, you know, coming up and not looking like traditional television. In, in, in that sitcom time, the family was the centerpiece in right. those family ties days and the Cosby days and so forth. That was always a nuclear family, parents and kids. And I feel like Jerry came along of his time to be the first person that your friends were your family. And you began to see a lot more of that. You saw it on Ellen and friends and single guy and all those other shows that they just sort of dispensed of the parents would show up as secondary characters, but you know, it really became about really what was happening in culture at the same time. So, right. Pat, you were there from the beginning. So what was your kind of your run? I know you had some they brought you back. You did the pilot intro in season four, but you were on staff, what, 90 and 91 or just 90? Yeah, I really, to be honest, as a writer, which 
<laughs> this is not a big reveal, but a special yeah. consultant is not a Writers Guild credit. And so therefore, they're not obligated to make the same kind. That's why like when there's books written about it and stuff, my name doesn't show up is because it wasn't mandated, right? If you had a story editor credit, if you had, and I didn't know, I was so young, I didn't know. I was just happy to be on the boat, right? Right, Going to the new world. But, um, but I feel like uh, when they did the first episodes, you know, this drawing, the short straw came up to be the warm-up comedian among the writers. And we were, I was naive amongst uh, other things. We all thought, well, what do we need a funny comedian? We're all funny. Larry's funny. Jerry's funny. Matt's funny. And, and so we drew straws. That was Larry's insistence that we short straw warms up the crowd. So this was not on the pilot. It was on the first episode after the pilot when, when Julia Louis-Dreyfus had joined. So I drew the short straw and I did double duty for a few bucks to be the warm-up comedian. Huh. And then an episode, the second episode after that, uh, I said, all right, we got to draw straws. And Larry goes, no, you have seniority. Like you have the experience. So you have to go back. Like, I, now it's your job. Yeah. I sort of took that on and, and they paid me for it, but it was a really unusual, that's a, not a great so job. Is, is that why Larry brought you back in season four to do the warm up of the fake pilot? I was still, I, here's the thing. After I was writing for the show, when I was writing on other things, I would come back one day a week and I would still do the warm up on tape night. So wow. I did, that's I might've awesome. done 75 episodes that way, you know, which is literally just keep when the show is going between each scene, I'm introducing the character actors. I'm talking, answering questions from the crowd doing, you know, they ask the craziest questions. And I, and I used to be very uh, forgiving. I, I would say there's no bad questions and, you know, I'll get the answer if I have to talk to somebody on the boom mic or whatever I have to do. And then the questions got to be like, is this a repeat? I go, we're shooting the stupid thing right now. Like, I was just yeah, it takes patience. You're dealing with the, the yeah, yeah. That's a that's a tough gig. I, Tourists I, and yeah. people on work release program and wherever <laughs> they get these audiences from, it was crazy. And right. and we used to recreate scenes for the live audience if it if it connected it. I always said it's better to play the story out in order for the tape audience mm -hmm. because. Otherwise, they don't understand the story and they're not laughing. So if we let's say we pre-shot something in a car, that sequence might be, you know, on a green screen or on the street scene or something. The studio audience wouldn't see that. So we'd bring out a couple of chairs and the actors that were in the car would sit and they would just act it out so that those lines would be there. So when we did the next scene. You knew what had just happened. And. People afterwards raise their hand. Now, how do they put the car around them and the scenery in? And I go, <laughs> it's like, no, we're not. Oh. So you were there quite a while then, I, I think. But just to go back to the beginning, Jerry always talks about it. It's a homemade show. So it was pretty much you, Larry, Jerry, Matt. Like, did I don't know. Like, did you guys go out to lunch a lot and kind of just yeah, talk about that's, ideas? That's where it happened. Like we, in the very beginning, it was difficult to write in an office. All of us had generally written in our homes and on airplanes and late at night and some things. And, and there wasn't a lot of sitcom writing experience. Uh, Larry had done Fridays, I think, and a, a season maybe on Saturday Night Live. He had a, he had experience in the business, 
but not necessarily in this scripted form. I don't think Jerry had ever written on a sitcom. He had a, a you know uh, appearances on Benson much earlier that were you know didn't last so long. Right. But um, so one of the things that was great is that they decided that we should write towards ourselves as the audience, that we shouldn't try to be derivative of Murphy Brown and things that were out at that time, because that was like having one oar out of the water. You know, like it, we're already going to be going the wrong direction if we don't. The hope, I think, for Jerry particularly was entertain ourselves and hope there's people like us that want to watch a show like this. Right. And so he was pretty focused on, you know, th there was a lot more observational humor. There was a lot more nuances over small things. Uh, Larry was great at making small things into big things. So in those early episodes about the jacket and things like that, the network was not a fan of something like a favorite jacket. They're like, that's nothing to take. What's the point of that? Yeah. And I, I remember there being, you know, some squabble about it, but ultimately if anybody wants to learn something about story writing, you can make anything important to somebody. So it can, you know, it being favorite, it being your dad's, it being something that you got in some unusual way, you know, that, that as a MacGuffin, that can be a pot of gold. It can be, you know, a vial of cocaine. It can be whatever, right. right. To that person, you can make it matter. So I don't think the network was right. And I think uh, Larry was, you know, famously stubborn. And, it, you know, it, if you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, you see the real Larry David in many right. ways, which is that he just goes bullheaded into certain things. And he did that with some episode. That's how we started having one hour episodes was he just refused to cut them down. He would just say to the network, nah, I think we'll just go longer. Well, how about if we double down on this one? Yeah, it's interesting because when we talked to Matt uh, Goldman, he mentioned he was in a meeting with Jerry and the NBC exec and, um, you know, they were kind of giving him Jerry pitched an idea and they were like, no, nah, we should you should do this. And Jerry's like, oh, we're going to do this or I'm leaving. Like, I don't care. I'll be a stand up comedian kind of stuck to his guns. And Matt had mentioned how that kind of inspired him in a way. I mean, he was young at the time and it sounds like you were, too. I mean, what was it like being around Larry and Jerry? They had a vision, right? They stuck to it, like you said. Was there a lot of um, I mean, what did you? You know, you went on to 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 your own career that that's successful. I mean, writing your one man show and things like that. I mean, that takes a lot. Did you learn? I mean, what did you learn from just being around them? Like you said, you were just there. You were on the boat. Like anything you took away from just well, there there were lots of lessons that. along the way throughout yeah. um, from just being in the sidecar of success, because you know it's their decision to make, but you can see whether it's right or wrong, or if it works for you and that sort of thing. I know yeah. that. Uh, one of the things I learned early on is you can write TV or watch TV. You can't do both. At that time, it was sort of, I got a deadline I got, and I don't really want to write things like are on other shows. So I kind of want to tune that out a little bit. Mm. Um, when Matt and I took the bunk bed brothers, uh, it was also optioned later by NBC under a show, what we called American pie prior mm. to the movies and so forth. And I remember every episode Matt and I wrote of that, <laughs> there was a, always a threat that they would cancel us. They do a table reading and they go, we're going to pull the plug. We go, well, you've already paid for it. Like, let us rehearse it. And then like, or let us shoot it. It's, you got to pay for it. Like, it's like, if it doesn't stink yet, we just read it at a table. So give us a chance to rewrite it and so forth. So we got frustrated enough that I called Jerry 
And I said, Jerry, I don't, I don't understand this, that they're always like the guillotine's going to drop every, every day that we're working. And he goes, well, that's when he said, you can be the captain of your own ship was the key. If the ship sails, if it sinks, you can be proud of it. If you board somebody else's ship and it goes down, you feel helpless and you go, those dudes didn't know how to sail. Right. Which is you're, you're in a different business than network right. executives. Like I'm not down on a network or studio. There's a, there's a relationship that's required, mm -hmm. but at that time you had a different game plan. You let's call, let's call the writers and stuff in the art business, right? It's theater. You're telling a story, you're storytellers. So you're trying to entertain people and at the network, they are in the advertising business, right? They sell Wheaties and Nikes and, and it's they they give away the show for free in between these commercials that make all their revenue and that's what they care about right. so if nike doesn't want to buy a spot in this because it doesn't appeal to them you've got to change it which which you know it's very easy to see when you look at the super bowl or american idols final episode that's when all the eyes are there that's when the big money that's when it costs a lot for a Budweiser commercial. Right. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. in a smaller version, that's why they even take a break is so they can make money. And so the idea that you have to write endings to scenes that are interesting enough to come back after a commercial and hold on to them, that model is all about revenue share, making revenue. Right. And, and they look at the, you know, the, the stats and see where are we what level are we? oh not not enough people are watching we got to change something we have to do the, you know they're always chasing what they think is going to make more people which is usually a bit of pandering and you find it in movies you find it in testing they take it to a mall and people push buttons to say that was funny that wasn't funny well uh, do they know what's funny funnier than jerry seinfeld thinks is funny i don't think so you know <laughs> right. yeah. It's I mean, it, it, it was it was kind of panned by those uh, groups early on. Right. Uh, there were a couple of people. I think I would give Lily Tartikoff a lot of credit. That was Brendan Tartikoff's wife. She was a fan. She liked Jerry and Jerry's show and thought he was funny. And at that very beginning is when Brendan Tartikoff was running the show at the Pilot River. And I think at home, she gave him the nudge. Give it a shot. Keep keep it on. So that was like one vote. That made a big difference. Hey, wives yeah. have influence that I know. Um, <laughs> so Pat, then those are great points. And I think yeah. that happened to Seinfeld a little bit too in the later years. Like they just, they rode the ratings wave, but like Matt said, there was so much formative stuff happening in year one to kind of get to that point. So when did you know, you mentioned that you guys wrote an episode, Larry took it back and rewrote it. He seemed to do that a lot, but when did you know like how to write for these characters and who were some of your favorite characters to write for? Like how long did that take? Did did Jerry? I mean, it doesn't sound like Larry and Jerry had like overarching meetings with themes and things like that, right? It seems like they had it in their head, but what did they kind of tell you about these characters? Well, it was pretty uh, it was interesting. I kind of learned on the fly because we were we were in and it was all happening at once. But I can tell you. Uh, and I say this with affection, like when Jason came in initially, he was kind of playing a more nebbish Woody Allen type voice right. in the first few episodes, right. but he found his voice and George became his own thing. Right. And, and, uh, you know, you got to credit every one of those actors 
for bringing the characters. You know, we all knew that Julia was one of the guys or, or Elaine was one of the guys and Julia embodied that really well. She like knew how to shove people around and do things, but she did it in such an organic way that she, you know, look, we were all guys writing for a women's storyline. So until later when Carol Leifer and some of the other, you know, strong female voices came in, but, but she was always played out as one of the guys and even their attempt. I can't remember the episode where they went to date and, uh, and that kind of didn't take, it was kind of like sleeping with a buddy. You couldn't do it, you know, for, for Jerry and Elaine. Oh, the deal. Yeah. Yeah. The deal. That was a, mainly yeah. written episode um but but what we did have fun with and this is the stuff i really like being around in those early episodes when he broke up with the the, the male friend the male unbonding yeah the male unbonding. um treating that like a real breakup between two people and making uh kevin dunn was the actor i think yeah. and he yeah. was great he was great to because he played it so he kind of guilted jerry into things and you know it's just like oh still got to be this dude's friend. And, you know, we've all had somebody around that you have to have over Thanksgiving, or if you don't, then I'm going to make you do it this year. Cause that person doesn't have anybody to come, you know, and you, you don't know how to shed that person from your life. So that, you know, we could relate to some of these things that Jerry and Larry were, were pitching that felt a little unusual. And I guess that's when I really, I really, anytime a little turn, you know, like, lying and say that he worked at Vandalay Industries and that he had a different job. You know, it's like, oh, everybody knows what it's like to be caught in a lie, right. you know, but, but George was classic. And this was very much a Larry thing was he would go down the rabbit hole to try to keep that lie alive. Yeah. He, I mean, yeah. Van, our Vandalay was first mentioned in, in season one in, uh, in the stock. So tip. two I mean, or three or something. Yeah. The yeah, stock tip. yeah. 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 I mean, season one has its moments. I mean, it sets the characters up. We're 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 huge fans of season two, season three. I mean, two through five really are are, are quintessential George. Um, but um, you know, our, our favorite episode is the phone message where you know George uh, has to know, chase down. The yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, that that's that's where we're you know we're we're more in that camp. And then the later years, it kind of just got cartoonish and, and a little bit. Well, I think know. in the midsection, they really found their voice. I think yeah. that. Season one was, well, first of all, it was a short season, right? right? It was called, it was called the Seinfeld Chronicles. And I, was it four episodes initially? It four, was, yeah. Yeah. So it was really literally four independent stories, just trying to figure out what it was. But I think that um, the actors and the guest stars, really the, the, the key to everything was the, you know, Larry David's chronicling of his life all of those real things, the soup Nazi, the contest, those were all happening. Those were all basically reflections of things that were funny in Larry's life. And you see it, if you just follow his career all the way through Curb, you see that he's married, then he's divorced. And then, you know, because he's he's got some kind of funhouse mirror on himself. Right. That, and, and George is, is Larry, and we all know that by now, but 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 Jason Alexander was sort of a more likable version of that. He was sort of the more palatable version of the selfish guy. And when you see it in Curb, you just shake your head sometimes and you go, why, why, why is he taking a handicapped parking spot? Why is, you know, that, but that's so Larry is to create enough crisis to make it funny. 
and to make so he did that in every episode it's it's by the end you see how selfish these four characters are and nobody really wins they don't ever really get the tickets or they win the prize they always end up hoisted on their own petard right so um it's funny you brought up uh being a prop comic before and was do you remember the episode that larry charles wrote the fire um and they had ronnie k i don't know if that was like an ode to Played you by Dom I, I, yeah, I don't think it was an ode to me, but, but boy, <laughs> Larry Charles was a really, there were so many great people that came in there. Yeah. You know, you've probably talked to many of them along the way, but Alec Berg and um, Schaefer and Berg were a team that were like a big part of it. And yeah, uh, Tom and Max were Max pros. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They were, these were great combos of people who began to really understand how to move this uphill and forward together with them but they worked all the time anybody who doesn't think that uh jerry and larry were writing their asses off and i think it got harder when um when jerry was running at the end on his own right and so forth it was just it's just a lot to do you know to to create a thing and to write a thing and to act a thing and then to check on the edits and to be sure it's consistent and i mean i i admire him for getting out at the top of his game and even though nbc was throwing more money his way and so forth it was like of his time and you know he hasn't um had any problem with comedians in cars drinking coffee and whatever finding other interesting ways to entertain people so so speaking to jerry i know he was on your podcast i'm sure you mentioned you were coming on this seinfeld podcast <laughs> yeah yeah of course <laughs> by the way he has a list of questions for you guys oh <laughs> anytime anytime so tell us a little bit about uh, the podcast. I know, I think like us, like you, I mean, like us, we, uh, we formed this during um, the pandemic for some to do. Um, it, it sounds like you did say a little bit about uh, the podcast. I listened to the Jason Alexander one today. It was great. Oh, yeah. Well, it's called Creativity and Captivity. And it's really not about COVID or pandemic, but it, it, it is about um, somebody holding the audience captive for an hour was essentially the premise. And I decided that I do a lot of creative consulting for other things, for uh, people's screenplays, for theater pieces and all those sorts of things. And those conversations were kind of keeping me alive when things shut down because all my touring productions, I was directing commercials that all closed down, all kinds of stuff was like off the table. Right. And I realized even though I didn't have a venue, I still had a voice. And many of these people were friends that I could see whether they were interested in very specifically talking about the creative process, how and why they do what they do. So I, the first shot I took was to Pete Doctor, uh, the chief, he's the chief creative officer of Pixar, and uh -huh. he was in charge of Up and Inside Out and Soul. He was the writer and director on, on all of those. And he was like, yeah, let's do that. And it was great. I mean, I was like, oh, this isn't so hard. Let's um, let's give it a go. And he gave me an hour of his time and we did the first episode. We spend a little bit of time, um, on the material because I like to, I really want the guest to bring some golden nuggets that if somebody is a screenwriter, if they're a director, if they're an actor, if they, whatever their interest in being creative is that every guest has some transferable information. So I've talked to illustrators and ventriloquists and aerial choreographers and all kinds. And that's part of the game too, is a different creative discipline. 
Mm. And I'm getting some amazing people and they're super cool about it. And I, we do it as an audio only podcast, but it's available on all your, wherever the kids are getting their podcasts out of a back of a van, you can get it there. Um, But I'll be, uh, I'll be talking to Susan Stroman in the next couple of weeks. She uh, directed and choreographed Mel Brooks, the producers on Broadway and lots of other, you know, winning things, all that great stuff you see at the beginning of the Tonys when they do those crazy Neil Patrick Harris dance sequences. She she does all of that. And I really, I like to talk to people who aren't necessarily gigantically famous, but who are wildly creative, who are this woman, Drea Weber was the aerial choreographer for all of Pink's concert stuff. And the stuff you see her doing at the Grammys, hanging over the crowd singing. And, you know, somebody's job is to make that happen. That's 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 awesome, man. I mean, so, I, I, yeah, that's. I mean, we feel the same way about this. Just talking to people that are that are doing different things and being creative. Um, you know, you had your hands in a lot of different creative things. I mean, you know, magic, uh, stand-up comedy, the the writing, the producing, the one-man shows. The I mean, where where did where do you feel like? How would you? I don't want to say describe yourself, but what did you enjoy the most of all those things you've kind of done in your career? Or is it just, you, you just like to go on to the next thing and kind of just keep learning? Or is there one in particular you kind of hang your hat on? Um, well, I did well in a few of them at different times. Like I felt like right. I was graduating to different forms. Yeah, yeah. No, but I, but what's interesting is it, it, that's when it occurred to me that my most interest is in creativity. Just a general, creative wherever uh, right. It is. right but i didn't know that you know initially i was a kid magician and i was solving problems and figuring out how to do tricks and then i was a sitcom you know i was a stand-up comic and then a sitcom writer they're all just puzzles to put together in some way and ultimately what i was doing that i didn't know was i was a producer a producer producers always looking at the budget, figuring out what we can do, talking to the set designer, talking to the costumer, talking to, you know, all those elements are just another puzzle. So ultimately uh, I'm a good producer because I I'm always thinking about all the elements of it. And I'm, I'm pretty good at staying on budget and I'm generally good at coming up with an original idea. And I didn't know that. Like when you're a kid, if you said, do you want to be a producer? You wouldn't even know what that do- is. Right, right. And nobody would pick it, you know? everybody wants to be a director or a star that's that's the bottom line is that they think that's where all the power is and you know you have to being a director is specific when you direct theater it's one thing and when you direct sitcoms or movies it's another thing in sitcom land the directors almost even the ones that were on for a long time they're still beholden to the producer to to Larry or Jerry's opinion right. and the notes come from there down to you and then get dispersed. You're a mechanic that is managing the director of photography and the cameraman, you being sure the story tells like you have a lot of responsibilities, but it's not the sort of auteur thing that you would get in film. If you're a director, right? Right. You know, and in theater, what's funny is that the director disappears when opening night comes, they go, the actor actually has to, is the is the runaway stagecoach at that point every night they get to do whatever they want in their performance hoping to keep it consistent but right. the director closes down on a sitcom with the editor and it's finished and nobody can mess with it but in theater they just vanish into the night and and then the cast is in charge of it with notes from a pr- production manager or 
producer or somebody along the way, but they're kind of different. Even the word producer, I found that when I would talk to the audience about what a producer is, there are so many versions of it that you kind of can't tell what there's a line producer whose job is very much about the money. What does everything cost? How do I get it to work? And then you go over to Broadway and most of those producers are just people who donate money to get it built. Like a guy could be a producer and all he did was write a check for a million bucks and nothing else. Right. So, and That's then underneath great. it, I don't know how the audience, when they read the credits, there's a co-producer, an associate producer, you know, there's all these things and they all do a slightly different thing. Right. Yeah. And they all reap the benefits from Seinfeld, a lot of them. Well, our producer just writes a check and that's it, Pat. But uh, yeah. And which one of you is the producer? And which producer? <laughs> He's the one you don't see on screen right now, our producer. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's, the Tom, that's the Tom Sawyer of this operation. Right. <laughs> He's got you guys painting the fence. It's funny you mentioned uh, everyone wants to be the star. But just to, to close out and finish with Seinfeld, like I think that was the, the essence of Seinfeld. Jerry didn't have to be the star. He... He kind of distributed it to yeah, his cast and the guest stars. I'm assuming you felt that, right? Being part of that. Yeah, show. no, he he articulated it to me in a different way. Um, and among other things, he knew he wasn't an actor. He knew that he was a stand-up comic playing the central character, and he equated himself to being more like Andy Griffith on the series. So the characters around Andy Griffith were kooky, and you know, Barney is. Kramer, you know what I mean? Like, right, right. Let them, let them breathe, let them do their thing. And he's the stable guy at the desk, sort of running the sheriff's office and all right. the nutty stuff, you know, Gomer and Goober and people are coming in. And that's so, why, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, but I'm saying uh, to a credit to him that he knew he had an ensemble piece. He let people shine. He let guest stars shine. And I think on other series, sometimes when somebody gets to be the star of a show, they kind of, commandeer all the jokes for themselves because and, and sometimes it's their agent sometimes it's somebody else who wants them to become a star out of it and they don't care if the vehicle is good but i think they always had the sense of this being a solid ensemble show yeah and and jerry remained the most consistent throughout we always say that i know how likes to bring that up to you i mean even when the show got a little bit outlandish in seasons eight and nine because jerry was that guy early on he just stayed that guy i mean things got wackier around him and stuff but it was jerry was like the rock of, of the whole thing you know kind of just uh, holding it together as far as the characters went as far as the the show went and it's a really good analogy that you know things were circling around him and he was sort of holding everything together yeah which is great but he also began to find him he was a little more animated he had ways of you know his voice would to certain oh, yeah. cadences you know some of that stuff was discovery and part of it was that it was there was a atmosphere where they were bringing stuff to the party it, you know the way kramer would enter i remember in the early episodes that used to drive larry david crazy he really didn't like michael richards sliding in or hitting the door jam or or you know you know making some weird thing and oh, really? as as the warm-up he would say to me tell the audience not to, you know, laugh or clap. I go, I'm not telling them. You, you tell them, you know, because wow. it was, it was, it was yeah, almost like Jackie Gleason entering on the honeymooners where he would come walking on and spread his arms on like, hey, and then the crowd would cheer. Um, and, uh, you know, and look, that was Michael's invention. I think it's amazing. And, but for Larry, it was sort of like, 
it was eating away story time. Right. And it was just, but that one, that one, he couldn't beat that. That was one that the crowd loved it so much. He couldn't get rid of it. But when it came to the stand-up segments, that was Larry's uh, doing and, and rightfully so he needed more story time. If he had 22 or 23 minutes of story and two or three minutes got stolen for stand-up bits, he was coming up, you know, so it was like, Hey, look, he's a stand-up comic. We get it. We don't have to show him doing his job, (laughs) you know? You know, cheers. You barely ever saw anybody mixing a drink on cheers. Right. It was a bar, right? Right. What was the stand up there in the beginning, though? I wonder because they were afraid they wouldn't be able to write enough because they were all new. They're just like, let's just, uh, I would say not for the story more that that was the, that was the pitch. It was, his well, comedy. my guess isn't that it was uh, that they couldn't write enough. I think it was what often happens is the insurance policy of Jerry's a very good stand up comic, right? So we at least have that, right? right. It always tied in too, right? I think that always happens. You know, you saw on the Tonight Show, you know, when Jay Leno was uh, host full on, he was good at monologues. The monologue got a lot longer. It was sort of like, hey, let's go into Jay's wheelhouse, right? So I think that that's kind of the nature of all people creating something new is hold on to an insurance policy of something that might get you through, through that mess. Well, like I said in the beginning, not many people were there from the beginning. You were, Pat. Um, hats off. I mean, you've, you've brought us a lot of joy. We love the new podcast. Before I let you go, who's Nebraska's favorite son? Is it Tom Osborne or, or Warren Buffett? Oh, well, I, favorite son? Hmm. That's a, good, <laughs> that's a good question. At one time for Nebraska, it was Johnny Carson. Right. Right. And because you, he, you got the okay there with yeah, him. Yeah, I did get the okay. But I'm, I, but, I would say if you talk to people in the state, um, anybody sports related will tell you it's Tom Osborne, but Warren Buffett has lasted the test of time. And, <laughs> and most of those people bought some Berkshire Hathaway stock when it was low and Warren keeps riding it out. So I, I would say he's going to get more credit. Um, I, I, I once did a thing with Warren, which I was hosting a, a fundraiser and it was at the time when who wants to be a millionaire was sort of at its peak yep. and Regis was doing that. And they, they asked me for sort of a sketch premise. And I said, why don't we do, why don't we do who wants to be a jillionaire and all the contestants already have to be billionaires. So we had Warren Buffett and this guy named Walter Scott and you know, these guys own major companies. And it was really funny um, because we were able to, kind of reenact the show with these millionaires as con- or billionaires as contestants. And then at the end, Warren won and he's sort of notoriously tight. So I said, you know, I said, you won the jillion dollars. What are you going to do with it? And he said, well, that's, that's a lot of money. So of course I'm going to give each of my kids $300 and, uh, and you know, I'm going to get a new suit or something, yeah. but he was a good sport. Yeah. Cool. Pat, well, this is Pat, great, man. Thank you so thanks much. Thanks so much for the time and the memories. We appreciate it. Well, no, no, we appreciate you guys, your affection for the show and keeping the conversation going. Have you yeah. had Stephanie uh, Kennedy, Kennedy on? Yeah. Yes, yeah. Stephanie Kennedy she, on. Yeah. Yeah. She's been doing a lot of cool posting on yep. Facebook and other things and, you know, and showing Wayne, pictures. Uh, Wayne Ken- Kennan on, too, the uh, director of photography. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. The behind the scenes stuff is really, uh, really interesting to us. The yeah, well, it was a good family. Everybody was working together to, to make a cool thing under their guidance. And I think it's 
it really just was a really amazing trip to be on, even for whatever period of time anybody kind of joined in on it. Uh, it's it's you know in in the rest of the world it's like being in the space program, you know, where people go, oh, I've been to the moon, kind of thing, right? right? Like I don't I don't generally throw the credit around, but if I go to a party in in Austin, people go, oh, you know, like I wrote on Seinfeld, like you could hear it from across the room. And somebody wants to tell a secret to somebody. So it is, you know, uh, it's a pretty good badge of honor to have on your, on your, uh, For sure, you know. man. Original. All cool. right, boys. Well, good Thanks luck. Thanks so much, the, Pat. And I, I'll expect, to, uh, you know, my residual checks to come just flowing in. <laughs> Talk to your producer much. about how this breaks down. Will do. <laughs> Thanks okay. so much, Pat. Have a All great right. night. Have man. a good one, boys. Thank Cheers. You.